turn uh, to Revelation chapter 14. Uh, it's been since October. Um, and this month of 2017 marks since this exegetical study began. And this is actually message number 89 in our verse-by-verse study of this very important book. The Bible says, Blessed is he that hears and understands and keeps the words written in this book. And yet it is one of the most neglected uh, in the New Testament church. Uh, And that's really a shame when you consider the very, very direct and important things that are said to the church in Revelation 2 and 3, the things which are. So it's been an interesting journey. I don't think this book is shrouded in mystery. I don't believe it's something that we're incapable of understanding. The problem is so many people forget that Scripture is best interpreted with Scripture. And they make the grave error of filtering the plain through the obscure instead of the obscure through the plain. And as we saw in our study on the advent of Christ the past five Sundays, that a lot of the questions we have are actually answered right there in Scripture. And sometimes the secrets of the Scriptures are hidden in plain sight. And the Bible says the secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him and that God will reveal them to us. And so it's been an exciting journey and we'll continue along uh, until we're finished or until the Lord comes for His church. I don't know if you still have your outline or not. We are uh, finishing up. uh, uh, We just finished up chapter 13 back in October uh, and I spoke to you about the mark of the beast. That was another example of how sometimes the, the secrets or the riddles are right there in plain sight. And we looked at uh, what that mark is, what it stands for, how it is not something people are tricked into receiving because they think they're using a credit card or a social security number. It's an act of worship. It's associated with an act of worship of the beast. And it's a very visible and yet embedded thing. And that's where we ended last time, and now we get into chapter 14. Chapters 12 through 14 is another one of these what I call parentheses in the book of Revelation. It's not advancing the chronology. As these things are revealed to John, the things which shall be hereafter, from time to time it's like there's a pause and a zooming out to look at the big picture and a testimony of what God is doing behind the scenes. No matter how bad things are, no, no matter how much judgment is falling upon this created order, there's always a God at work behind the scenes. He's transcendent and beyond His creation, but yet He's imminent and intimately involved. And so, we're in the midst of that now. We saw one of those parentheses in Revelation 7 where the narrative pauses, it zooms out to show that in the midst of all this, God has sealed 144,000 Jewish witnesses that will do His work of finishing the taking of the gospel to the ends of the earth after God has taken His church out. Um, He returns and raises up Israel to finish the work of the Great Commission. We saw the fruit of that work as a great Gentile harvest. We see another parenthesis in chapter 10. Uh, The Messiah as He appears, a mighty angel on behalf of Israel. And what will be going on in Jerusalem with God's two anointed ones, those two street preachers, and uh, their ministry of preaching judgment and truth. And then in chapter 12 through 14, we have another so-called parenthesis in which the narrative pauses at the end of the uh, sixth trumpet. 
and it zooms out to show a theme that highlights this entire period. This period we call the tribulation in the prophet Jeremiah is called the time of Jacob's trouble. The time of Jacob's trouble. The Bible speaks of a time when Israel will be regathered into the land in a state of unbelief and that in that regathered unbelief God will introduce a time of Jacob's trouble that moves them from a place of unbelief to a place in which they acknowledge their transgression and call for their Messiah. So everything uh, is happening exactly like the Scripture said it would be. We can see that today. But this time of Jacob's trouble uh, is demonstrated here in these chapters as a great war. A great war between Israel and the dragon or Satan. We're introduced to two wonders. None of the other characters listed here are wonders. And that, those wonders are the dragon, Satan, who blasphemes not only God during this time, but those dwelling in heaven, which is the church. And then the other wonder is Israel and uh, the, uh, the, one, the nation that gave birth to Messiah, His hatred for them. And so that's the theme of these chapters. It's a great war against Israel, instigated by Satan and his Superman and the false prophet. So we see that. We're introduced to some main characters. We went through chapter... 12, where we have the, the two wonders, the, the cause, the hatred is rooted in Messiah. Uh, we had the, the heavenly campaign in which Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon was cast out of heaven. The heavenly campaign of this war, and the Bible says, Woe unto those that are dwelling on the earth, because he's angry and he knows his time is short. There are some that claim that Satan was cast out of heaven. Uh, at the cross, some even foolishly claim that we're living in the millennium now, that Satan is bound. I don't know how people can be so foolish. I don't know what planet they're living on. Get out of your house and travel a little bit and you'll see that Satan is certainly not bound. And uh, if he was kicked out of heaven at the cross, how could he be the accuser of the brethren accusing them before God's throne night and day? There weren't any brethren in the church until Pentecost. But Satan's kicked out of heaven at this midpoint. We see this heavenly campaign in chapter 12. And then it goes to an earthly campaign in which he pursues the woman Israel. God offers her up protection, protects her in the wilderness. And Satan's so angry he can't get at the remnant of Israel. He goes after the remnant of her seed, which are the Gentile converts, the gleanings, the tribulation saints that hear the gospel and believe. Not people that have clearly heard it in this day and time. In this time of God's grace, not those people. Second Thessalonians is pretty clear that God will send them a strong delusion to believe a lie. But there's a lot of people in this world today that have never clearly heard the gospel. We ought to be busy about preaching it to them. I've met people here in America that have never heard the biblical gospel and have no clue who the God of the Bible is. Oh, they may have been to a church or they may have a quote-unquote Christian friend, but they have no clue whatsoever. It behooves us to preach the gospel to them, to bring them into the church. But there are those that won't hear, that'll come. Satan pursues them, they'll pay for it with their lives. We're introduced to these tribulation saints and, uh, during, uh, in, in, in um, chapter 12 and then in chapter 13. We're, uh, it's two of the main characters of this earthly campaign of this war between Satan and Israel are introduced. The commander in chief is Antichrist. We had an extensive discussion upon him or about him, the beast out of the sea, and then the false prophet, the minister of propaganda, the beast out of the earth. 
And uh, the last thing we talked about was the moral of the story. With the Antichrist, we had a moral of the story. Okay? Payday someday. That's what his character teaches us. In Isaiah chapter 10, we're told that he's the rod of God's anger. So even the most wicked superman in the history of the world is an instrument of God's discipline and anger upon a wicked, (coughs) wicked, wicked world. And upon a wicked people that ought to know him, Israel. And God uses him as the rod of his anger. And the lesson is there's payday someday. Even for the wicked that prosper and seem to never stumble, there's a payday someday. And then the second moral of the story we saw with the false prophet is that man, we, we like to boast that we came from a beast. So God will give us a beast to rule over us. And, we'll, and He'll brand those beasts or automatons just like cattle. Oftentimes we as human beings speak our own judgment. And God gives it to us. You came from a beast. I'll give you a beast to rule over you. And if you want to buy and sell, you're going to be branded like cattle, like a beast. It's like Israel in the desert. God didn't just say, okay, I'm going to punish them in the desert and make them wander around. They're the ones that said it. They got unhappy and started complaining. Oh, you brought us out here to die. God just brought us out here to kill us. Okay, well, you just spoke your own judgment. That's exactly what's going to happen to you. So we can learn very important truths and principles that apply even now when we study future prophecy. But that brings us to chapter 14, which we had the heavenly campaign of this war. We had the earthly campaign, and now we have what I call the victory campaign. There's an end to the story. And we get a glimpse of the victory. It's already been written beforehand. All of these things. It doesn't matter what we see going on around us. The end has already been written. And that's what we have here in chapter 14. A victory campaign. And it begins with a gathering on Mount Zion. Let's just look at verse 1. I'm not going to get much beyond that today. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. An assembly on Mount Zion, the seed of government, in ancient Israel, David's Mount Zion, an assembly of the Lamb. We saw Him back in chapter 5. Seven horns, seven eyes. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. The Root of David. The only one worthy to open the scroll. For as the elders that represent the church there in heaven said, Thou hast redeemed us out of every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation. It's this Lamb standing with the first fruits of the remnant of Israel here in victory. We know when we study Old Testament prophecy that Jesus Christ returns. He puts His foot on the Mount of Olives and it splits in half and He walks right through the eastern gate of Jerusalem right to Mount Zion and declares victory. We know from the Old Testament His first dominion was not in a stable or a cave. He was born in the tower of the flock. His second one is when He puts His foot on Mount Olives from the very place where He ascended back to heaven. It's a physical, literal return. It's not some allegory shrouded in mystery. When the Bible says Mount Zion, it means Zion. When it says the Mount of Olives, it means Mount Mount of Olives. When it says Jesus Christ's foot will step on it, 
Even the disciples staring into heaven. Those two men standing by. Why are you looking into heaven? This same Jesus who you saw taken from here will return in like manner to the same place. It's a literal return. A literal victory. As we go into chapter 14, we're going to see a uh, contrast here. A couple of contrasts. First, there's two groups of marked individuals that we've already been introduced to here in Revelation. In chapter 7, we've been introduced to 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from the tribes of Israel. Remember we talked about how Levi is counted as a tribe. He generally is not in the Old Testament. There were 12 tribes and then Levi because Joseph had been divided into two. Joseph's sons were elevated to the positions of Jacob's sons. But in Revelation 7, we have Levi and 11 tribes, 12,000 from each of those. The tribe of Dan is omitted. The tribe of Dan is who led the people of Israel into idolatry in the book of Judges. Jewish tradition teaches that Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan and that, uh, that that's absolute. But there are some things said prophetically about the tribe of Dan that are very interesting, but they're not represented But we're introduced to these marked individuals, 12,000 from each tribe that have the seal of God in their foreheads, upon whom the trumpet judgments have no power. And then we're shown the fruit of their ministry, which is a great Gentile harvest. We're introduced to those marked individuals. And then in the last chapter, we were introduced to another group of marked individuals, the ones that receive the mark of the beast, the number of his name, an act of worship, In contrast, a counterfeit of God's people, sealed by the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. Satan's are stamped by the Spirit of Antichrist unto the day of damnation. So we've already been introduced to two marked groups of individuals, or two groups of marked individuals, and we're given a glimpse of the fate of these two groups in chapter 14. The victory involves what ultimately happens to those who are sealed by God in their foreheads and those who are sealed or stamped by Antichrist in their right hands or in their foreheads. So we see that contrast in this chapter. We also see a contrast at the end of the chapter between two different reapings. A reaping by Christ of the earth and then a reaping by a mighty angel of the vine of the earth. So there's a contrast between two reapings. The reaping of the harvest, which I believe points back to the rapture of the church, and then a reaping of the vine of the earth, in which the blood rises even to the horse's bridle. So we have a contrast between the rapture and Armageddon. So there's a lot going on here, but it begins with an assembling of the remnant of Israel atop Mount Zion. Here we see in this verse that what is written in their foreheads is the name of the Heavenly Father of the Lamb of God. We're told in chapter 7 that they're just sealed in their foreheads, but we're not told what this seal is. Here it's revealed. It says that 144,000 having His, that points back to the Lamb, His Father's name written in their foreheads the heavenly father of the Jewish Messiah. It's interesting because the very name 
that every religious Jew is so afraid to write, so afraid to say, is actually stamped on the forehead of these true Jewish witnesses. You know, that a lot, in rabbinic Judaism, there's great boasting and pride in the fact that we won't write the name of God or we won't even say it. There's a name, in, there's a word in Hebrew called Hashem. That's the word that's used when referring to the God of the Bible. Hashem means the name. Often when we're sharing the gospel with Jewish people or making out or sharing with these Israeli backpackers, we'll refer to God as Hashem, the name, because they won't superstitiously refer to him as Elohim or Jehovah. Sometimes they'll say Adonai. But here, these Jewish witnesses have that name that rabbinic Judaism is so afraid to speak, stamped on their foreheads. You know, we often use God's name very flippantly as a curse word, taking it in vain. And in uh, Judaism, they, they try to avoid doing that. They actually take the third commandment seriously. But the sad thing is, they take it seriously in the letter, but not in the Spirit. You know, you may uh, not use God's name in vain from your lips, but are you using it in vain by claiming to be one of His and yet rejecting His Messiah? And yet rejecting His revelation? You can be a person of prayer, but the Bible says it's possible to pray to the God of the Bible and be in sin against Him. Because the prayer of those that turn their ears away from the Word of God are an abomination. I have a family member that boasts in his homosexuality. And he talks about the proof that he is okay that God made in this way is because he asked God to take it away and God never did. So it must be okay. Well, when you've ignored what God clearly says, even your prayers are an abomination. God doesn't condescend as if He's a genie in a bottle. So oftentimes we can boast about what we do or don't do in the letter, but in the Spirit, we're as guilty as the next man. But here we have a Jewish remnant with that name they're so superstitious about stamped on their foreheads. and something not to be ashamed of. These Jewish witnesses here are the fullest manifestation, the ultimate end of what Paul refers to in Galatians 6 as the Israel of God. This is the Israel of God. This is the Israel that's not just the physical seed of Abraham, not just circumcised in the flesh, but circumcised in the heart. A true Jew from time immemorial has always been one that's ethnic and spiritual. And here is the fullest manifestation of that. Not just 144,000 that we're presented with in verse 1. 12,000 from each tribe, Levi included, Joseph divided into two, and Dan excluded. But we're told in verse 4 that these 144,000 are only the first fruits unto God and unto the Lamb. So if they're only the first fruits, that means they're others. There's a, there's a harvest out of the nation of Israel during this very difficult time. We know it's more than this because in chapter 12, the, is, the woman which represents Israel is driven into the wilderness and she's provided a place of protection. It's interesting when we look at the Jewish feast that were given to the nation of Israel in the book of Leviticus. Christ literally fulfilled the first season of feast at His first advent. 
He'll literally fulfill the fall season when He comes again. Christ was crucified on Passover, A.D. 30. He was risen from the dead on the Feast of Firstfruits, A.D. 30. And the Holy Spirit was given on the Feast of Pentecost, the spring harvest in A.D. 30. He literally fulfilled these things. But in, on the Jewish calendar, you had the Feast of Firstfruits, which is where there was a celebration or a thanksgiving of the first fruits that came forth after the spring plantings. And the Bible says that first fruits was to be celebrated on the morrow. That means the day after the weekly Sabbath that followed Passover. So if Passover was on a Monday, okay, first fruits would be a week later on the following, I mean, not a week later, almost a week later, on the following Sunday, the day after the weekly Sabbath. It's interesting because in A.D. 30, Passover was on a uh, uh, a Thursday and Jesus Christ rose up on a Sunday the third day after Passover. In that year, first fruits would have only been three days later because it was only three days from Passover to the, the day after the weekly Sabbath. And so Jesus literally fulfilled it. That's what proves to us that it had to be that year and other Scriptures give testimony. We've talked about that. But you had your first fruits on the morrow, the first day of the week after the weekly Sabbath following Passover. And from first, first fruits to Pentecost, which was a celebration of the spring harvest, you had a period of 50 days. So it was 50 days from first fruits to Pentecost, the spring harvest. That's how we know that the time that took place between Christ's ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Bible tells us that Jesus showed Himself alive by many infallible proofs after His resurrection for 40 days. And then at the Mount of Olives, the disciples were told to go back and wait for Him in Jerusalem until the promise of the Spirit came. And it came on Pentecost. So it means the disciples were waiting for 10 days. 10 days passed from the ascension of Christ until the coming of of the Holy Spirit. The first fruits were followed by a harvest on the Jewish calendar. The first fruits were followed by a harvest in the New Testament church. The first fruits are followed by a harvest here with the remnant of Israel that God wakes up during this tribulation period. So with the church, so with Israel in the last days. Who is the first fruits of the resurrection? It's Jesus Christ. Who is the harvest? Those that are alive at His coming, the rapture, the great harvest, when the dead in Christ rise, and we which are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, not to do a U-turn and come back to earth, but to meet the Lord in the air. In the air. That's the harvest. Okay? Um, there were others, there were those with Jesus that were the first fruits of the resurrection. Turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, an interesting little passage here. It says there were others, first fruits as far as the church is concerned, much like these first fruits were introduced here to in Revelation 14. Matthew 27, verse 51. I'll start with verse 50. Jesus, when He had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. 
This is Him on the cross. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose. The very thing that Paul describes as far as the church is concerned in 1 Thessalonians 4. The bodies arose. Not the spirit of the soul. The bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after His resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Here we have the first fruits of the resurrection. I don't know who these were. I don't know who they were, how many they were, but there were some saints that received their resurrection bodies after His resurrection and got up out of the graves and appeared to people and gave testimony. And then we see much later at the end of the church age there's a great harvest of saints. What we call the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15. When this mortality puts on immortality in the moment in a twinkling of the eye. It's the same here with Israel. The 144,000 in this time of Jacob's trouble are the first fruits. And then those converts of their preaching, those Jewish converts, are the harvest. We're told in Zechariah 13 that the remnant, the harvest, is one-third of the people living in the land at that time. Isaiah tells us in chapter 6 that it's one-tenth of the Jewish world population. If you look at the numbers of Jews living in Israel today versus the population of Jews around the world, a third of those living in Israel is virtually a tenth of the world's population. It's interesting that those numbers are very feasible even now. But we're given that information. That means there's a lot of terrible, terrible judgment that's coming before God's people descended from Abraham wake up. It's been written. That's why it behooves us to preach the Gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That all who believe might come into the church and escape these things. The first fruit sealed in Revelation 7 with a glimpse of their harvest at the end of the chapter, both Jew and Gentile, are preserved through terrible judgment and persecution. In chapter 9, we see that the fifth trumpet judgment, those hellish demonic creatures, not Russian tanks, Demonic creatures from the pit of hell have no power. They can't sting them. They're protected. Just like Israel was protected uh, uh, from some of the plagues there in the land of Goshen before they came out of Egypt. But they're preserved through terrible judgment and persecution. And here they stand with the Lamb in victory. Not all the Jewish remnants standing here, just the first fruits, because they were the instruments whereby the remnant recognized their sin and called for Messiah. Just like Levi had a privileged position when they took a stand for righteousness there in the Old Testament. These first fruits sealed by God take a stand and they're there with Him in victory. There's a similar picture we have in Acts chapter 2 with the church. Don't forget the church. The first church was Jewish. First pastors were Jewish. First missionaries were Jewish. First converts were Jewish. 3,000 of them. Acts chapter 2. It was the first fruits, Jesus' disciples, and those that were with Him in His earthly ministry. It was the first fruits that preached at Pentecost. 
to Jews gathered out of many nations to come down to the temple to observe the festival. And when the first fruits preached and the Holy Spirit came down, there was a harvest of 3,000 souls. 3,000 Jewish souls. A harvest. It points to what will take place during this time. Jewish first fruits will preach and there will be a harvest. Okay? God's people will wake up. It tells us in Hosea chapter 5 that Christ Messiah can't come until His people acknowledge their transgression and call for Him. So if we're told to be ready for Christ to come at any moment, but the Old Testament is very clear He can't come to Israel until they call for Him and acknowledge their transgression as a nation, then what we're told to be ready for is obviously something very different than the coming of Christ that we're talked about, that's talked about throughout the Old Testament. And we've discussed that in, my, uh, in our studies on the rapture of the church and some other things. I don't want to get into that right now, but Pentecost, according to Jewish tradition, was a celebration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. It was the time of the spring harvest, a celebration of the harvest, and a celebration, the rabbis uh, you know, uh, taught that it was a celebration or to be a celebration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. That correlation is interesting because when God gave the law, 3,000 perished. Remember the golden calf and all that nonsense and the judgment from God? 3,000 perished when God gave the law on Pentecost. But when God gave the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, 3,000 were made alive. God always does things consistently in an order. And I marvel at that. The point I want to make today, and I'm going all over the place, I apologize. The point I want to make is that God has a plan and a purpose for national Israel. And the reason I want to make that point today is because Israel has been on the forefront the last couple of weeks with this ridiculous UN Security Council revolution, a resolution by the refusal of our current president to do what America has always done, to stand in the way of these stupid resolutions that accuse Israel of crimes. They've been accused of a crime for being in eastern Jerusalem, for being at the western wall, for being in the Jewish quarter of the old city. That's what this resolution has done, and we sat back and did nothing. But despite all of that, I'll put it this way, there's an old song written in the 70's by an old Christian band called Lamb. It's, you probably, it'd be hard, I think you can find it on iTunes, but uh, I first did it on a vinyl record, but there's a song in there about time is running out, and it says, the Hebrews are back in their land to stay, no Arabs, no Russians will drive them away. Because God's got His hand in the affairs of men. Uh, and just like the Bible says, things are coming to an end. God has a plan and a purpose for national Israel. He has not forsaken the promises He made to Abraham. Or to His people. And He's not allegorized them. They've not been taken and spiritually transformed and put on Gentiles and applied to the church. There are many great promises to the church. One of the primary reasons that God raised up the church was to provoke His covenant people to jealousy. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. 
I'm going to look at verse 35 through 37. I don't think that's right. I'm not even in the book of Jeremiah up here. I missed that old Schofield Bible I lost a few week, you know, weeks ago. It's, it's just, I like this Bible, but... Um, I think it's chapter 31. I'm sorry, 31. Verses 35 through 37. Now in chapter 30, that's where we learn about the time of Jacob's trouble. Okay, We're told at the first part of chapter 30 that there'll be a regathering of the people into the land in unbelief, followed by the time of Jacob's trouble, followed by the salvation of the nation. Exactly what's presented to us in the New Testament. But in chapter 31... Verse 31 is great. Remember this, Jeremiah 31, 31. It's easy to remember. If you ever have an opportunity to share the gospel with lost sheep from the house of Israel, with Jewish people, we do it all the time with Israeli backpackers in South Asia, uh, scripture distributions in the malls to Israeli kiosk workers. I love this verse in chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is a covenant with Israel and Judah. Okay? Israel's not a code word for Gentile, and Judah's not a code word for church here. There's no reason to think that. God's going to make a new covenant. Now obviously, as we are the spiritual seed of Abraham, we are partakers of that. And we're a picture of that. Jew and Gentile together in the church for the people of Israel. But that word new covenant there in Hebrew, Berit Chadashah, is the exact same Hebrew title that's stamped on the front of a New Testament. New Testament. New Covenant. It's the same thing. It means it's Berit Chadashah in Hebrew. So I can say, you know, they're really afraid a lot of times to look at this book. They've been told it's a Gentile book. That it's an anti-Semitic book. That it teaches people how to persecute Jews. All I've got to do is open up to Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 and ask them to read it. And that kind of shows, proves that wrong. But God said He would give Israel a Berit Chadashah, a New Covenant. Hey, He did. Here it is right here. It's exactly what the prophets say. Wait a minute, you're not reading from my Bible. That must be from your New Testament. No, no, this is right here in the prophets. In the Nevi'im. What? New Covenant? Maybe I should take a look at that. So I like this verse for that reason. But as you go on to the end of the chapter, Thus saith the Lord, verse 35, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is His name. He's the one that created the sun and the moon and the seas. He's the one speaking. If those ordinances, that means the sun, the moon, the stars, the seas and the waves, if those ordinances depart from Me, said the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before Me forever. So in other words, if the sun stops shining... If the stars fall, if these ordinances cease, then I will cease. Uh, it, uh, uh, then shall cease the seed of Israel from being a nation. Thus saith the Lord, If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. 
We can't measure heaven and earth. The sun doesn't stop shining. The moon doesn't cease to appear in the heavens. The stars aren't just gone. Those things don't cease until God destroys the whole created order and makes a new one. But in this created order, these things don't stop. So in other words, God hasn't cast off His people. God hasn't forgotten His promises. The next time you run into a replacement theologian or somebody that boasts in that, usually it's young bucks on Facebook that think they know everything, that actually need to get up and go preach the gospel in a foreign country and uh, get a little life experience, but ask them if the sun stops shining. Ask them if the stars have fallen or if they can measure the heavens and the earth. God, 38, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord. From the tower of Hananiel unto the gate of the corner. There's a day coming when Jerusalem will be built unto the Lord, where the people of Israel will know their Messiah, and God will finish what He began in them. A popular fad doctrine, pretty hipster today, amongst those who fancy themselves quote-unquote reformed, <coughs> that word's thrown around a lot, reformed, I'm reformed. Reformed from what? Reformed, uh, historically, were those that came out of the Catholic Church. The Protestant Reformation. So if you're not part of the Catholic Church, how you reformed, historically. A lot of Reformed doctrine, the Reformation was solid and sound. Salvation by grace through faith, sola scriptura. But there were elements of a Catholic mother that some of the reformers had a hard time shaking loose from. We can give them grace. They lived in a very difficult time, suffered things we could never possibly know. But there's a popular fad doctrine amongst those who fancy themselves reformed today. Say they're reformed, they don't even use a Reformation Bible. That's pretty funny. But um, these voices, <coughs> the loudest ones mostly, you'll find them on Facebook, um, like to boast what's called replacement theology. I just mentioned it a few minutes ago. It's this idea that there is no, there is no land of Israel. That there is no nation of Israel. That we, the church, primarily Gentiles, we're Israel. We're the new Israel. And that the promises made to Abraham, the unconditional promises made concerning the land and the people and the remnant and the throne of David, that's all allegorical. It's spiritual. It's not literal. Replacement theology. They do with the coming of Christ much like what has been done a lot with the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. Usually the Song of Solomon is presented as an allegory. It doesn't say it is. Obviously, Paul says that marriage is a picture of the great mystery that is Christ in the church. So obviously we can look at that marriage of Solomon to the Shulamite and see principles there that point to Christ. But it's taught as if it's an allegory. And what's completely neglected is what a biblical romance between husband and wife can and should look like. That part's completely neglected. I had a great time... Uh, recently in, in, in our marriage counseling sessions with Eric and Mindy talking about what Sol Song of Solomon has to say about the intimacy that man and wife are given by God to enjoy in the marriage relationship. But that's often rejected because it's an allegory of Christ in the church. It never says it is. There's principles there that point to Christ because marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. But it, there's a literal meaning there as well. 
And so, what happens with biblical eschatology is it's viewed in this manner, even though the Scriptures don't give us any indication that it should be. It often goes hand in hand with post-millennialism, this idea that things get better and better and better and we eventually usher in the age of Aquarius or the millennial kingdom. It's a new age doctrine is what it is. Very Catholic. Very Catholic. 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 And it also goes hand in hand with anti-Semitism. I've never met a replacement theologian or a self-professing replacement theologian that doesn't uh, uh, miss an opportunity to say something negative about a Jewish person. Certainly doesn't care about their salvation because they certainly don't do anything to try to take the gospel to the Jews. And they only sit there and criticize those that try. Um, the proof of this stuff is just follow Facebook. Get on Facebook when something regarding the modern state of Israel makes headlines in the news. They'll come out of their shells. But this replacement theology is a fad. It's very popular. I put something up about a week ago saying we need to pray a piece of Jerusalem, pray for the people of Israel like the Bible says we should. And somebody crawled out of their hole, some guy that fancies himself a pastor. I don't even know him. I've gotten away from accepting friend requests from people I don't know. I'm not interested. I don't need any new friends. i got enough, you know. Um, and I like to use Facebook as a pulpit to give Christ, make Him famous. Some people don't like that. But. He crawled out of his hole to say that Israel's not the land of Israel, and Jews aren't Israel. We are Israel. No scripture, nothing. Just came out of his hole, never hear from you when I'm asking for prayer, never hear a word of encouragement when we're taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, or we're asking for prayer for people like Brother James and his family. Never a word. But you crawled out of your hole on a Christmas morning. Didn't have anything better to do than to troll somebody's Facebook page to say that we're Israel and not, not a bunch of Jews. Foolishness. And I've seen it a lot. Sometimes things like that don't engender a response, but in light of what's been in the headlines, I think we need to be reminded that when God makes promises, He keeps them. If God doesn't keep His promises to the nation of Israel, then how can we trust He's going to keep it for us? How can we? If Jew actually means Gentile, then how do we know salvation don't actually mean damnation in the Scriptures? Either we can... Believe God and take Him at His word or we can't. Watch out for this foolishness, my friends. It's a very dangerous doctrine. It's very, very, very Catholic. Going all the way back to Constantine when, when the Christianity was proclaimed the official religion of the Roman Empire. The statue of St. Peter at the Roman Basilica was Zeus. They just changed his name. They were already burning incense in Rome to Venus. Just changed her name to Mary. Kept doing the same thing. Okay, It was a political move. It's what's prophesied or foreshadowed in the letter to the church at Pergamos. The marriage of the church with the world. And when that took place, the church needed a Roman, a Gentile foundation to give it justification, to give it authority. And what it attempted to do was rob the Christian gospel of its Jewish roots. To rob it of the Jewish foundation upon which it was built. To rob it of its Jewish Messiah. And in that place, to put the Roman Pope. The Roman Church. And so this idea began to develop that the church is a new Israel. 
Not a Jewish Israel, but a Roman, a Gentile Israel. We are the priest. The Pope is the victor of, vicar of Christ. It's a Gentile thing and not a Jewish thing. It's a very dangerous doctrine. It was further developed by Augustine, who I consider the father of corrupt theology. He said a lot of good things, but there I can put some really pure water from a blue icy glacier into a Nalgene bottle. Tasty water. Fill it up 99% and then, take, and then uh, fill the rest of it up with, uh, with urine. And uh, that 99% good glacial water that, that isn't, isn't so good anymore. That's the way it is with theology. Just because somebody says something good doesn't mean that their theology is safe or sound. Augustine thought it was okay to use capital punishment against Jews and Christians that refused to bow to Roman Catholic doctrine. Augustine taught that uh, there is no literal Israel, that there's a new city of God, a spiritual city of God, of which we are in charge. And that's where those things were. Those seeds were sown. You come up through the time of the Protestant Reformation, a lot of those Catholic traits, this idea that we're the new Israel, we need to take over the world, and we use the Old Testament as a model to do it. Those seeds kind of stayed with some of the Reformers and crept up in Protestantism. That's why Bible-believing Christians and Jews were persecuted, not just by Catholics, but by Protestants as well. And then when you couple that with the resentment that came from reformers who thought that, well, we've <clears throat> discovered the gospel. If we preach the gospel now, now the Jews will believe. Martin Luther had his feelings hurt really bad because he just assumed the Jews would believe once they heard the true gospel. And when they laughed at him and rejected his message, he was resentful as a result of that. We've all had our feelings hurt, and that became bitter resentment very quickly. R Luther wrote some things about the Jews and their lies in that famous tractate. I've read it. He's talking about the, the rabbis. He's not talking about just average Jewish people. But there was resentment there and as a result this doctrine continued and it's crept up again today. It's the very thing that Paul warns against, warns against in Romans 11. Gentile believers boasting against the natural branches. We need to be careful about that. I want to talk about this some. I want to talk about the Israel of God next week because usually when somebody claims that the church has replaced Israel, they inevitably go to what I call two very hand-picked, cherry-picked scriptures that are taken entirely out of their immediate context. And this is the proof that's given. We need to be very careful of these fad doctrines that just pop up that just pop up and become popular. That in essence say that those saints and Christians and missionaries that have gone on before have all been wrong and now we've found the truth. We need to be careful about that. We need to be those that look at God's Word and take it for what it says. There's a lot of people out there that believe in God, that believe in Jesus, but we're called to believe God, to believe Jesus Christ, and my friends, those are two totally different things. Two totally different things. Do we believe God? Can we take Him at His Word? Or not? My friends, if what God says about Israel cannot be trusted, then how can we trust what He says to us in John 3.16? 
So I want to look at two passages of Scripture next week. Galatians 6.16 and Romans 2.28 and 29. Maybe that's something you can kind of study this week. Look at it in context. And ask yourself, is these, are these verses, verses teaching that Christ uh, is no longer the Messiah of Israel and that the church is the new Israel? Be careful of replacement theology, my friends. I'm sad to say that it's creeping up in Baptist circles nowadays. It's creeping up in Southern Baptist circles. It's a dangerous doctrine. It's the doctrine that the Catholic Church used to persecute and hunt down the Jews. Just like they did Bible-believing Christians, Anabaptists, and those that preserved and copied the Scriptures. If you go back and study historically the persecuted New Testament church, the preservation of God's Word, and the location of the Jewish diaspora from the time of Christ down through the church age, you'll find that those three things God has preserved in basically the same locations. So in the same place you had the remnant church preaching a biblical gospel is the same place you had the Scriptures faithfully preserved is the same place where you had the Jews scattered so that they could be privy to a gospel witness. It's a very interesting study. So the people that rejected God have always had a gospel witness. The church has always been there to provoke them to jealousy. And one day... That jealousy will become emulation and they will recognize who their Messiah is and call for Him. Let's pray for that. And let's be those that as we have opportunity, take the Gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. A great way for you to express your gratitude and your love for Jewish people is when you meet them. You can find them in the malls, working in the kiosks, selling Dead Sea products and things like that. I'm amazed at how many Israelis are here doing that. But it's very easy to say, hey, I appreciate the Jewish people. And this is why. God used your people to give His Word to mankind. Every author of the Scriptures was Jewish. It says that in Romans 3. That's the advantage of the Jew. Because from them came the oracles of God. Luke wasn't a Gentile. Just because he was a doctor doesn't mean he was a Gentile. There are plenty of physicians in Israel. I mean, the woman, the woman that was, had the issue of blood had visited many physicians before Jesus healed her. Just because Lukas is a Greek name doesn't mean he was a Gentile. Petros, Peter's a Greek name. I'll get into that later. But the authors of the Scriptures are Jewish. The Old Testament and the New Testament. And we can say, hey, look, God used your people to give His Word, the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible and the Brit Kadashah, the New Testament, to mankind. And because of that, I can know the true God. I'm just a Gentile, but I can know the true God who is the God of Israel and I can the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua or Jesus Christ. So it's a great way to be a witness or to say something along the lines of, hey, I love the Jewish people because a Jewish man changed my life. His name was Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. So God keeps His promises to Israel and we see the ultimate fulfillment of that uh, there in verse 1 of chapter 14. The remnant first fruits gathered with the Lamb there on Mount Zion. And praise God, as the church, we are able to rule and reign and rejoice in a Jewish Messiah that sits on a Jewish throne and we'll be able to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years. And then will come the end when there's a new heaven and a new earth. No more sin, no more pain, no more time. 
You know, as the New Year changed last night, it was kind of depressing. Uh, New Year's Eve used to be fun. We used to go to parties and hang out and eat a lot of food. Jamie and I have been to some interesting places on New Year's Eve. Years ago, we stood, uh, we spent the night in Vientiane, Laos, and walked out on the Friendship Bridge over the river between Thailand and Laos on, and watched the, the new millennium ring in. We ran to an ATM to see if Y2K was real. It wasn't. I got money out. <laughs> One New Year's Eve, uh, Ricky and I were sitting up at about 14,000 feet in elevation in the Solokumbu, and we, looked at, we were watching Mount Everest under the stars as the year changed. Um, and we've done some other stuff. I, Jamie and I stood in the freezing cold snow in Times Square one time and watched the ball drop. Stood there for six or seven hours. Done some fun stuff. But last night, it's kind of like the last few years, my wife and kids were asleep. and I was just sitting there by myself. This is pretty sad. <laughs> it's not fun anymore. Having a little Dan Fogelberg, same old Lang sign in the background wasn't exactly helping the mood either. either but I just thought about how... Even one day, time itself will bow to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The calendar will bow. Antichrist will come. He'll try to change the calendar times and signs. But there's coming a day when it says there in Revelation, we've already seen it, there will be time no longer. And even the calendar that just goes on and on and on will bow to Christ. And all of these things bound by time are suddenly unbound. And we can have peace and rest for all eternity in the presence of the Lamb and the presence of His angels. Just like we see here, microcosmically speaking, with these 144,000 on Mount Zion. So let's not forget that. Let that joy of the Lord be our strength and not our circumstances. Not our circumstances. I sat there by myself, kind of depressed, and I said, you know what? I want the very first thing I do in 2017 to be talking to the Lord. So I just spent the time in prayer over the transition. And I could say that was the first thing I did this year was talk to the Lord. And uh, praise God for that. I actually made a fond memory last night. Ranks up there with the rest of them. So don't let our circumstances cause us to be <coughs> melancholy. There's coming a day when we too will stand with the Lamb. The remnant of Israel, the Old Testament saints, the church. And we'll rejoice because the calendar itself will be subject. All right, I'm going to shut up. I've already gone too long. And uh, just by way of introduction, we'll get back into the text next week. God bless you all.